Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'm going to do something a little different. I've been working on this particular episode for at least three months, and it took me two weeks just to put it all together. I started out doing some research, and it took me time to collect all the information and the understanding that I need to know to be able to present it. So let me give you some background. In about eight months, we're going to have this year's Meeting of the Minds seminar on the campus of Sherman College of Chiropractic. The topic for that seminar will be immunity. That being the case, we'll be talking about immunity periodically on this podcast between now and then. We already have some great speakers lined up for this seminar, and we'll be having some of them join us on the podcast as we get closer to the seminar. In the meantime, I wanted to start off the discussion by talking about some immunity basics. Considering the times we live in, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine is a good opportunity to talk about immunity and how modern science attempts to hijack the system in the attempt to create something better. When I stand back and look, I can't help but notice a recurring theme. The world's climate is spinning out of control due to climate change. Man must intervene to save it. The human body is spinning out of control due to viruses. Man must intervene to save it. The monetary system is spinning out of control due to debt and deflation. Man, the Fed, must intervene to save it. The reality is that all three of these systems, the planet, the human body, and even the monetary system, are all self-regulating, and all man really needs to do is get out of the way. This is why our chiropractic philosophy is so important today, because it's the only antidote for the hubris of mankind that inclines him to worship his own intelligence and neglect the reality that we often are the interference produced by the intelligent mind that blocks the flow of the intelligence that created our mind in the first place and maintains our bodies through the process of health as a natural restructuring of our bodies on a continual basis. I know we, as practitioners, don't always or ever have time in our offices to discuss these things with our patients, and certainly not to the depth the topic deserves. So, I wanted to present this to you in a way that even though you, the practitioner, might know a lot of this information, I want to arm you with the ability to correct some common misconceptions. I also want to do this in a way that, should you choose, you can send your patients directly to this particular episode to hear the information for themselves. That leaves me walking a fine line of trying to speak to everyone, and that's a difficult line to walk. Just understand that any oversimplicity on my part is merely an attempt to walk that fine line. I'm not trying to be condescending toward anyone's level of knowledge, but I want anyone to be able to join along and not get lost in the process. So if you're ready to take a journey with me to talk about how vaccines work, what they do and don't do, and some paradigm-busting ideas that will change the way you see the human body, then hold on tight and let's take this wild ride together. When I was a kid, I had a series of books that I loved called Value Tales. Each story has a particular famous character, they all have an imaginary friend who guides them through life, and they have a virtue that their life exemplifies. I still love this series so much that I read them to my kids and they love them too. As a kid, my all-time favorite book was The Value of Believing in Yourself, and the character was Louis Pasteur. In this book, vaccines were exemplified as marching soldiers that mounted a coordinated and organized attack against the blob goblins that represented the viruses. This image imprinted in my mind as a kid, and I held this view of medicine in general for many years. Fast forward ahead to my early teenage years. One day, I was playing a little too rough with my brothers in the backyard, as boys are prone to do, and as I came in the house, I complained about a pain I had developed as a consequence. My mom asked if I had taken anything for it. Well, no, of course not. I'm a teenage boy. Well, don't complain if you aren't going to do something about it. Okay, I grab my pills, and then before I take them, I ask my mom, 
how does the pill know that my leg is the problem and not my spleen? I don't know. Just take the pills. Remember, I had imprinted in my head that medicine is smart and coordinated. So how does it know? Really, how does it? Now flash forward to my time in chiropractic school. One day, one of my classmates throws a book on my desk and says, read this. It's a book about vaccines. He says, learn about these now, because by the time you have kids, it's too late to get educated. What was he talking about? Vaccines make miracles. Didn't he read that same book about Pasteur that I did as a kid? Well, I've been studying the immune system since 1997. In that time, I've read numerous books, taken countless classes from PhD scientists, and done everything imaginable to gain a better understanding of the immune system. So before we get started, we need to begin with a basic understanding of the parts that make up the immune system, just to make sure that we are all on the same page, regardless of education. The immune system has two parts, the innate immune system, which creates cell-mediated immunity, and the adaptive immune system, which creates humoral immunity. Cell-mediated immunity involves phagocytes, cells which eat other cells, cytokines, and other such cells which we are born with. The adaptive immune system, or humoral immune system, humor being a Latin reference to fluid, in this case blood, is made up of antibody reactions to specific proteins. In an effort to keep this simple, that's all we need to know for now. Most vaccines operate on the idea that if you can stimulate the immune system to produce an antibody response, this is usually done with aluminum or mercury, then the body will recognize the structure of the virus, whether it is live attenuated or killed, and it will create an immune response to it. The process of live attenuation or killed is not something that we have time to go into, but the purpose of it is to preserve the physical geometry of the virus. Antibodies are specific to geometry, so it is the unique shape of the surface proteins that the antibody is specific to. Now, let's unpack that statement a little bit. The adjuvants of aluminum and mercury are absolutely not preservatives, but they are integral to the function of the vaccine. If you inject a killed or live attenuated virus into the body, the immune system is so smart that it knows that virus is just a dead body that will do no harm, so it ignores it. You have to include an ingredient that will irritate the immune system to the point of creating an antibody response if you want the vaccine to have any effectiveness. While some vaccines do use mercury, yes, even to this day, Aluminum is by far the preferred ingredient due to its tremendous immune reactivity. I recently learned that all vaccines that are labeled as thimerosal-free, thimerosal being the ethyl mercury containing adjuvant, still have thimerosal in them. How is that possible, you might ask? It turns out that after the vaccine is created, anything added to the preparation must be listed as an additive. When the vaccine companies realized that there was a public movement and awareness of the fact that mercury is listed by the FDA as the second most toxic substance on Earth, and the biologically active version is 10 times more toxic, they knew they had to do something. Instead of adding thimerosal to the vaccine, they moved it up in the manufacturing process. So, when they extracted the virus particles from the cells they were being cultured in, they already contained the thimerosal. Legally, they no longer had to list it as an additive and could therefore call it thimerosal-free, even though thimerosal was used in the process, and if you were to test the preparation, you would certainly find ethyl mercury in it. This will be relevant in just a little bit when we talk about why there's a push to move toward mRNA vaccines. At this point, we need to deviate just a little to discuss immune philosophy and the options in front of us. It has been long believed, and yes, this would be considered the central dogma of vaccine science, that all long-term immunity is the result of antibody response or humoral adaptive immunity. In other words, it is almost universally believed that if you want to create long-term immunity, you must produce an antibody response and the T-cells are almost entirely ignored. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the vaccine industry who disagrees with this statement, and all vaccine methods are based on it. However, 
Dr. Thomas Cowan tells the story of a young man who was born with no humoral immunity and his body simply didn't create antibodies to anything. As you might imagine, this made him a perfect test subject, so he was monitored consistently throughout his life. As a young man, he acquired the measles. The doctors promptly treated him with vitamin A, which is the proper treatment, although most doctors today do not know this and underestimate its value. Nonetheless, he had resolution of all symptoms in just a few days. The doctors then theorized that he would probably continue to get measles throughout his life due to his inability to produce antibodies. Surprisingly, he lived a long life, and he never got the measles again. This simple example gives us evidence that long-term immunity is not provided solely by the antibody response. There is evidence that the innate immune system, or cell-mediated cell mediated immunity, including the T-cells, is also adaptable and can, can provide long-term immunity. The problem is that the central dogma is so strong that most scientists can't see past it. And if they did, it would also call into question the validity of the vaccine obsession. This is due to an important concept called original antigenic sin. Clever name, right? Original antigenic sin is the idea that once the body has been taught to create a particular response to a virus, it will always respond with the same response to all similar viruses. Let me show you how this works. Let's say I'm a five-year-old boy and my first real sickness is a case of the measles. My body will respond with a balanced response of both humoral and cell-mediated immunity. This has the effect of not just eliminating the virus, but it teaches my body how to properly respond with both sides of my immune system. Original antigenic sin says that the next time my body sees the measles or anything similar, it will respond with the same balanced approach. That is why it was previously understood that the measles was beneficial for establishing a proper immunological response, and there was ample evidence that those who had the measles lived longer and healthier lives than those who didn't. This is all due to original antigenic sin. Now, let's suppose I am a two-year-old and my first exposure is a measles vaccine. Due to the aluminum in the vaccine, I am going to produce a humoral response which is intended to drive antibody production. As humoral immunity is upregulated, cell-mediated immunity is downregulated. Now, thanks to original antigenic sin, if I encounter the measles or a similar virus in the future, I am going to naturally respond with a dominant antibody response and very little cell-mediated immunity. It's important for you to know that antibodies only kill viruses when they are in the blood. Once the virus enters the cell, you need cell-mediated immunity to destroy it. The belief is that if you have enough antibodies in the blood, then the virus will never make it to the cell and you won't need cell-mediated immunity. That seems like a big gamble to me, but to each his own. The other thing we need to talk about is that a high level of antibodies circulating in the bloodstream is not healthy, but it's a pathway to disease. A high level of antibodies leads to allergies. If it increases, it leads to asthma. If it increases, it leads to autoimmune disease. And if it increases further still, it can lead to autism. Many chiropractors and other natural health professionals have made the mistake of telling their patients that we want to, quote, boost their immune system. This is a terrible idea, because if you boost the immune system of someone with autoimmune disease, they're going to get worse. What we should be telling people is that we want to balance their immune system. Health is a state of perfect adaptability, and that includes having an immune system that can transition between humoral and cell-mediated immunity, because each is important in a given situation. Humoral immunity is necessary when the virus is in the blood, and cell-mediated immunity is necessary when the virus is in the cell. This leaves us with the philosophical question, if the body is stuck in humoral immunity due to original antigenic sin as a result of vaccine exposure, are we really healthier, regardless of the presence or absence of external symptoms? Now, let's talk about the new SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. 
It's necessary for you to understand everything we just talked about in order, in order to understand where we are going. The reason mRNA vaccines are so strongly desired is because it is believed that they will reduce vaccine hesitancy and refusal. Ultimately, only time will tell. The first reason is because standard vaccines can take, contain egg proteins, and this is the first barrier to vaccination because people with egg allergies cannot take conventional vaccines. While this is often downplayed by the doctors and nurses who give the vaccines, it is a very real risk, and I've known people with egg allergies who went into anaphylactic shock from a vaccine. mRNA vaccines do not contain egg proteins, so those people now have no reason to refuse on that basis. Another reason has to do with hesitancy over adjuvants, namely aluminum and mercury. While the media and the industry have done everything imaginable to eliminate all concerns, vaccine hesitancy over these adjuvants still persists and for good reasons due to unanswered questions and mandates instead of answers. The media will tell you that the accusation of adjuvants leading to autism has been thoroughly debunked. What they won't tell you is that Dr. William Thompson, the CDC researcher who conducted the studies to thoroughly debunk it, is now protected under federal whistleblower protections. According to him, the CDC forced him to say that there was no association when his studies demonstrated a strong association between adjuvants and autism with the highest risk of autism being associated with African-American boys who have a three times greater risk of autism with MMR vaccine than do any other populations. If the media wants to talk about systemic racism, why don't they start by talking about that? Regardless of the truth, the vaccine industry recognizes that they need to make a move away from adjuvants and the mRNA vaccine allows them to do that. I'll explain how in just a minute. Finally, there's a religious objection to vaccines on the basis that they contain aborted fetal cells. With certain vaccines, aborted fetal cells are used as a medium to grow the culture. As the viral strains are extracted from the fetal culture, fetal cells are often extracted as well and then become part of the vaccine to be injected directly into the bloodstream. Once again, mRNA vaccines eliminate the inclusion of fetal cells into the vaccine itself. All right, so let's talk about this mRNA vaccine, what it is and how it works. For this, I'm going to give you one of my references so you don't think I'm making anything up. To understand the mechanics of it, I listened to Dr. Shane Crotty. He's a vaccine scientist in San Diego who's worked on the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, and I find his explanations to make sense, whether we agree on the implications or not. I've done additional investigation to better understand the parts he brushed over. So here's how it works. First, you culture the mRNA proteins you intend to use. This is the phase where fetal cell cultures may still be used, but when they are extracted, they are only removing one mRNA strand at a time, so there's no fetal tissue in the actual vaccine. Each strand of mRNA is then encapsulated in what Dr. Crotty calls a, quote, butter droplet. Its real name is pegylated lipid nanoparticle. Obviously, lipid is fat, and nanoparticle means it's really small. But what in the world does pegylated mean? PEG, P-E-G, is the abbreviation for polyethylene glycol. Polyethylene glycol is listed by the FDA as being physiologically inert. However, even Wikipedia recognizes that polyethylene glycol is antigenic and produces a unique antibody response in as much as 70% of the general population. It's hard to see how that could be called inert. The result is that some people, those with an elevated antibody response, <clears throat> will experience an allergic response to the polyethylene glycol, which is completely unrelated to any response they might expect from the vaccine itself. Many people have reported an allergic type response following vaccination, and this could be due to the PEG itself and not be an indication of developing immunity. It's impossible to know since an antibody response looks like an antibody response, regardless of the true cause. Okay, 
So we have mRNA encapsulated inside a pegylated lipid nanoparticle. When injected into the body, the mRNA will find itself in the cell where it will begin to replicate its information. Inside the normal human body, DNA becomes transfer RNA, which becomes messenger RNA, which becomes proteins. It always works this way and it doesn't go in reverse. If you're worried that this vaccine will permanently change your DNA, don't worry, mRNA vaccines can't do that yet. On the other hand, do worry because there's something else that can do that and millions of people have already put it in their bodies, but we'll talk about that in a little bit later. As far as the mRNA vaccine is concerned, the mRNA is designed to produce proteins because that is what they do. So what proteins are they producing? Viruses contain proteins on their surfaces and coronaviruses has some very large ones that create the appearance of a crown, thus the name. The large proteins are called spike proteins. It was recognized early on that the antibodies of the immune system target these spike proteins. It was then theorized that if we could program the cells to create and display spike proteins, then the immune system would increase its antibody response, so the body would be prepared should it encounter the wild virus. You see, this is the reason why the vaccine would reduce symptoms, but it would not reduce transmission. I think this is a good time to tell you one of my favorite quotes of all time, since it will be relevant from here on out. My favorite quote is from a fictional character, Dr. Malcolm, from the original Jurassic Park, when he said, quote, Your scientists were too preoccupied with whether or not they could. They didn't stop to think if they should. If someone is going to tell you that you must do something, then they should be willing to address the possibility that their idea might be a horrible idea. If they're not willing to address the possibility that it might be a horrible idea, then I'm not willing to let them make decisions on my behalf. It should not escape our attention that Michael Crichton was a medical doctor, although he never practiced but preferred to write about what he saw. I've read several of his books, and one thing I love is that he understood the lethal combination of great power and no ethics. So he wrote about the consequences instead of complaining about the process. Here's a quick little story about Michael Crichton. When he was in college, he had an English class where he felt the instructor was being particularly harsh on him. He told another professor about his suspicions, and with the other instructor's blessing, he submitted a rare essay written by George Orwell. When he was given a B- on the paper, he informed the instructor that if Orwell was only good enough to get a B-, then English probably wasn't for him. Having suffered a similar situation in a college English class, class, I immediately knew Michael Crichton was my kind of guy. Anyway, back to the mRNA. The concept behind the vaccine is no more complicated than what we've already discussed. The mRNA causes the cell to produce spike proteins. The cell then displays those spike proteins on the surface of the cell. The immune system then produces antibodies that are specific to the spike protein. The spike protein is a trimer, which means it's a single protein in triplicate, and this gives it a particular geometrical structure. The antibody recognizes the geometry of the spike protein, and that allows it to attach to it. The antibody will then destroy the cell, leaving behind an elevated antibody response, since this process will be created countless times by a single vaccine. Thus, we have antibody-based immunity with no eggs, no adjuvants, and no fetal cells. On the flip side, it has been argued that, by definition, this is not a vaccine, it's a synthetic pathogen. What's the difference, you might ask? Well, the key hang-up is that the mRNA vaccine does not prevent transmission, which the manufacturer will tell you, but it's an essential component of the legal definition of a vaccine. If it isn't a vaccine, then why do they call it one? Mainly because the verbiage allows them to use the Jacobson trial, which has been badly misinterpreted for decades, to dodge liability for any negative consequences. When you're introducing a new biological, and you don't know for sure what will happen, but previous studies have produced mass death in those test subjects, wouldn't it be nice to avoid liability? From a business perspective, who could blame them? 
I want to deviate here for just a minute to highlight a huge pet peeve of mine. We as a society have to draw a line and a distinction between experts and authorities. Despite what you might have been taught, or rather forced to believe, the FDA and the CDC, and all government organizations for that matter, are not experts. They are the authorities. Anthony Fauci is not an expert. He's the authority. I know that might rub some people the wrong way, but it's the absolute truth. Dr. Fauci has held his position for 50 years, and his legacy is one of complete and total failure. Just think about the explosion of new and novel infections, infectious diseases that have occurred on his watch. One example is the AIDS epidemic, which leads me to introduce Dr. Kerry Mullis. Dr. Mullis was the Nobel Prize winning chemist who invented the PCR test, and sadly, he died in 2019. There are many YouTube videos, at least for now, of him explaining how the PCR test works and how people, like Dr. Fauci, who he names by name, misuse his test to create the appearance of an epidemic where there isn't one. It was Kerry Mullis who I first heard suggest that HIV does not cause AIDS. It seemed so far out there that it was hard to believe, but since it was from Dr. Mullis, I had to at least consider it before I could dismiss it. I hit the research, and it wasn't hard to figure out. He was right, and the only reason why we believe otherwise is because Dr. Fauci taught us that we should. Mind-blowing, right? Oh, we're just getting started on destroying paradigms, but let's keep going. I highly recommend that you look up Kerry Mullis and listen to what he has to say. He didn't win the Nobel Prize for nothing. Now, getting back to the mRNA vaccine, here's where that Jurassic Park quote comes into play. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine released a study that he conducted. He is a Harvard graduate and an award-winning researcher. He dared to ask the question, are those same spike proteins found anywhere else in the body? Probably an important question to ask if we're going to take this route and cause the body to develop immunity against them. The answer he found was that the answer is yes, because he identified as many as 55 different cells that can have the same spike proteins, including cells in the thyroid, brain, and uterus. It appears that the presence of spike proteins in the uterus could potentially lead to an immune response that could produce sterility. Whether the sterility would be permanent or temporary is unknown at this point because it hasn't been researched. Additionally, if a pregnant woman were to get the vaccine, it could lead to spontaneous abortion due to these same spike proteins. That's why pregnant women are not supposed to get the vaccine at all. I fear there are many doctors who do not understand this and may recommend it anyway, so everyone needs to know that pregnancy is an absolute contraindication for vaccination because it could lead to spontaneous abortion. Now, if you look online, you will find numerous sources telling you it's okay to get vaccinated if you're pregnant. Well, I've just explained to you why you probably shouldn't, and the people doing the research agree with me, even if the people who profit from them do not. Also, if you do get it and something horrible happens, nobody will, ha nobody will have to deal with the consequences but you. There's nobody you can legally sue and they will discredit you as hysterical if you dare to accuse them of responsibility. Just something to keep in mind before you make your own decision. To sum up this section, I need to let you know that everything I've presented to you is the work of PhD scientists and not medical doctors. No doubt, your medical doctor and even their nurses will cite their position as evidence that they have knowledge and credibility. They will say things like, I viewed the research and it is conclusive. Remember, this is a fast-tracked vaccine, so there is little evidence and nothing is conclusive at this point. Please don't fall for that pedantic bait. Instead, if you're in doubt, here's a simple test you can use on anyone who claims knowledge on the subject of vaccines. Simply ask them to define original antigenic sin and antibody-dependent enhancement, also known as pathogenic priming. If they can't define them or dismiss them as not relevant, you now know that they know nothing and should not be fully trusted for their opinions. I've already explained original antigenic sin, so let's discuss antibody-dependent enhancement. 
This concept, which is also called pathogenic priming, is very interesting because it isn't something we would have anticipated, but rather discovered by accident out of necessity. Perhaps you've heard that the current mRNA vaccine is the first one released, and it isn't, but it isn't the first one to ever be created. Why have previous mRNA vaccines never made it to the market or been released to the public? That's probably an important thing to know, don't you think? Well, they created the vaccines. They went through initial testing until they were ready for animal testing. The animals were vaccinated with no major problems. They were then released back into the population or the herd. Time went by when the next outbreak took place in the herd. All of the vaccinated animals died. Well, what happened? The scientists had to figure it out. What they discovered was a very strange effect that happens when you have overactivation of the humoral immune system, meaning lots and lots of antibodies. It turns out that some of these antibodies are inferior or suboptimal, for lack of a better word. What then happens is that the antibody binds to the virus and binds to a phagocytic, which means cell-eating cell, like a macrophage, for instance. Due to incomplete activation, the virus cell is moved inside the phagocytic cell, but the phagocytic cell never consumes it. Instead, it acts like a Trojan horse, and as the macrophage moves inside the cell at will, it takes the virus to places it could not achieve on its own. The virus is then able to release itself from the antibody due to incomplete coupling, and now it's free, moving inside the cell. Remember that as antibody production goes up, T-cell production goes down, and T-cells are what is now needed to attack the virus now that it's inside the cell. This leaves the host at greater vulnerability to infection, allowing the virus to replicate rapidly and unchecked. This is what happened in the experimental animals, and it was the reason it could never be brought to market because there was no solution to this problem. It's important to understand that this is a process unique to mRNA viruses, so it happens with the wild-type virus as well as the vaccine. It's the reason why those initial vaccine tests resulted in the death of the animals, but it also happens to a lesser extent with wild-type exposure as well. The question is, how did they solve this issue for the current mRNA vaccine? Not only does it appear they haven't, but it appears they used an emergency situation as the opportunity to push past these concerns without ever solving them. If they have solved the problem, then that concern could be quickly dissolved if they wanted to. If it's still a problem, then it won't be the injection of the vaccine that leads to death and dysfunction. It will be the next time the patient encounters the virus for which they've been vaccinated. That's when all the animal models died. I want to be clear that this is not a vaccine criticism or a critique. It's a recognition of the uniqueness of mRNA viruses and something that must be known and addressed if we put ethics ahead of profits. Wild versions of dengue fever, Zika, and retroviruses like HIV all do this on their own, even in the wild type. If a doctor or nurse or anyone for that matter is going to opine with the pretense that they are more knowledgeable than others, but they do not know or understand this concept of antibody-dependent enhancement, then they are lying to themselves and consequently lying to everyone else as well. Having mentioned retroviruses, let's change directions just a little bit. If you remember the concern of rewriting our DNA, then you must know what that involves. To move from mRNA or messenger RNA means you have to go to transfer RNA, and then you need an enzyme called transcriptase to unzip the DNA, and another enzyme called integrase to insert new code into the old code. Moving in this direction requires way more parts than simply moving from mRNA to proteins. That's why the vaccine moves in that direction. If you remember, I said there was another way to rewrite the DNA. Certainly everyone knows about GMOs by now. So how do they genetically rewrite the DNA of the crop they intend to produce? The answer is with the use of retroviruses. A retrovirus contains three or nine genes. It inserts these genes into the DNA, and they are now a permanent part 
of the organism. The only remedy the body has is to destroy the cell in its entirety. Scientists figured out that if they extract the viral genes and insert the code they want to insert, the retrovirus will bypass all the complicated machinery of the cell and simply insert the DNA. I'm sure you've heard of the connection between viruses and cancer. This is due to retroviruses. The flu isn't giving anybody cancer, only retroviruses. The reason being that cancer is what happens when the DNA is faulty. Under normal circumstances, the body would destroy the cell. End of story. The average person produces 300 cancer cells every day, but a healthy body will simply destroy those cells. Retroviruses have the ability to kick that number up and to hide the cancer cells so it overwhelms the immune system. We all know cancer is on the rise, so we have to ask, why and how are we being exposed to so many retroviruses? I'm going to let you answer that question for yourself. The Johnson & Johnson COVID mRNA vaccine is different from the Pfizer and Moderna version because it uses an adenovirus delivery system, much like what is used to create genetically modified foods. It also delivers a DNA package, which then creates the mRNA intracellularly to produce the spike proteins. The question in this case is how much do you trust the company making the vaccine? Do you trust that they are only using DNA that will produce spike proteins, or are they including additional DNA? This vaccine has a much greater potential for misuse, so it all comes down to how much do you trust them. That's up to each person to decide for themselves, but it might help you to know that Johnson & Johnson recently lost a major lawsuit because their baby powder was causing cancer, and they knew about it, and they lied to the public anyway. Is that a company you really want to trust with this much power over your health and your DNA? You decide. Now that we've discussed how best vaccines work and how our immune system normally functions, Let's deviate a little and begin looking at some long-held assumptions that create our paradigms. I can't promise this will be any less emotional, but I can promise you we'll probably think I'm insane in just a few minutes. But then again, that's kind of the point when it comes to paradigms. The reason people have emotional reactions is because they are following a paradigm more than actual knowledge. If our most basic assumptions about what we think we know are proven wrong or incomplete, then this can have enormous ramifications downstream about the conclusions we draw from these basic assumptions. Let's start with an incredible TED Talk given by Dr. Gerald Pollack, a PhD from the University of Washington. His information is the work of Gilbert Ling, which he summarized in the book, Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. In his TED Talk, he talks about the fourth phase of water. We all know that matter exists in three phases, solid, liquid, and gas. Okay, so the human body is 70% water. In what phase is that water? If it was a liquid, it would all pour out when you cut yourself. It isn't solid or gas because the temperature isn't extreme enough. So what phase is it in? Well, it turns out that unlike all other forms of matter, water is capable of a fourth phase. The fourth phase of water is a gel. The human body is made of cells, and cells consist of water in a semi-gelatinous state. A gel, like jello, is made by dissolving proteins into water with the application of energy, usually heat. With biological gels, it is theorized that ATP provides the energy necessary for creating the gel, but that's as much detail as we need in that direction. The interesting part about all this is that the cellular gel that lines our blood vessels has a magnetic charge. This is where it gets complicated, but I will attempt to simplify. The blood vessel gel layer has both positive and negative charges. The water molecules are dipoles, so they line up according to charge. For example, if the vessel has a negative charge, then the water molecules align with the positive end toward the vessel and the negative end away. This attracts another positive and so on and so forth until you have an arranged layer of fluid. This process involves something called the exclusion zone or easy water. 
on the biolo biological formation of H3O2. From there, it becomes too involved for me to describe at this time, but you are welcome, and I invite you to listen to Gerald Pollock's describe the whole thing in his TED Talk. I have to tell you, his lectures are truly remarkable if you're interested in that sort of thing, and they're certainly worth the time, uh, as long as you don't mind having your paradigms destroyed. I don't want this to get too convoluted, so let me cut to the chase. It is theorized that this electrical charge is primarily responsible for blood flow through the circulatory system and not the heart, although it does assist. Researchers have noticed that when an animal dies, its blood will continue to pump for up to an hour after the heart has stopped beating. How do you explain that if the heart is the pump that moves the blood? This has led Dr. Thomas Cowan to express the radical conclusion that the heart is not a pump. See, I told you you'd think I was insane. Thomas Cowan writes about this idea and discusses it thoroughly in his book, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. He suggests that the heart is primarily a sensory organ and the minor pumping role is a secondary function. If this is true, then it suggests that cardiovascular disease is a consequence of a change in polarity or magnetism. I don't want to go too much further down that road, but you're welcome to investigate it on your own, and I've given you two resources by which to do that. This idea of polarity in the blood made me think of the work of Dr. Andrew Molden. His work is highly controversial, although his credentials are truly impressive, but you're welcome to check it out by watching the documentary Tolerance Lost on YouTube. That's not really the point. The point is that it was through his work that I first learned about zeta potential. Zeta potential is the electrical potential that exists in a colloidal fluid, which of course is what blood is. Once I knew what I was looking for, there are numerous studies in the literature that discuss the delicate balance that maintains zeta potential. Andrew Molden attempted to link autism to changes in zeta potential, leading to cellular clumping, which affects blood flows to capillaries, leading to multiple mini-strokes in the tiny capillaries of the brain. Like I said, his work is controversial, but everything involving autism and vaccines is immediately considered controversial anyway. But my point has to do with the recognition that there's an interaction caused by electrical potentials that affects how blood particles interact with each other and how the blood vessel moves blood itself. This aspect of human function has been almost entirely ignored, but it's now quickly coming to the forefront. No doubt it will be decades before it enters the consciousness of any practicing physicians, and that is unfortunate and tragic because of how much damage could potentially occur between now and then. My point with all this is that we're just beginning to understand the role that magnetism and electrical charges play in directing the intricate and microscopic functions of the body. Is it possible that vaccines and our attempts to manipulate the body with various drugs is leading to changes in magnetism and polarity, the effects of which are largely unseen, but which can still have devastating effects on our health? At this early stage, it appears very likely that we, are, that we are creating, as yet, imperceptible changes, including changes caused by an unhealthy gut biome. I bring you back once again to that Jurassic Park quote, because we cannot allow ourselves to be so enamored with what is possible that we neglect the important road signs that implore us to do what is wise. Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in the United States. Cancer is second, and medical intervention is third. Is it possible that the high rate of cancer and cardiovascular disease are linked to a common cause? Is it possible that they are both linked to viruses and the unseen changes that they cause in basic functions like blood flow through changes in magnetism and polarity? Only time will tell, but our understanding of how these things work is growing every day. I know I've hit you with a lot today. If nothing else, I hope you come away with a better appreciation of just how truly remarkable our bodies are and the delicate balance that defines the line between health and disease. I am a huge advocate of informed consent 
And I don't believe that informed consent is possible unless we go above and beyond to make sure that people are truly informed. And that begins with informing ourselves. By all means, don't take my word for anything, but verify what I've said and work to increase your own knowledge. Whether you're a doctor or a patient listening to this today, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me. While I'm not in the business of criticizing and correcting people on the internet, I do also realize the damage that is done when people spread false ideas unchecked, because in this day and age, anyone with an opinion is automatically an expert. I hope this gives you a basis for understanding that will help you to correct some of these misunderstandings and to address whether concerns are legitimate or not. As I've said before on this podcast, the purpose of science is to eliminate bias, not to create it or justify it. My intention is not to be for or against anything, but simply to educate so you can make informed decisions. As I mentioned in the opening, we'll be talking more about this topic of immunity as we move closer to the meeting of the minds. If you're a Gonstead Fellow, a Gonstead Diplomate, or a Gonstead Practitioner with more than 20 years of practice experience, I want to encourage you to begin making plans now to attend this year's Meeting of the Minds. We already have some great speakers lined up, but I'm going to keep them a secret for now. If you're eligible to take the Diplomat Test, but have not yet done so, you can attend one Meeting of the Minds without becoming a Diplomate. This might be the year you want to take that opportunity. If you are eligible, I would strongly recommend that you consider taking the exam and becoming a Gonstead Diplomate yourself. Next week, we'll be back with another wonderful guest, so I hope you'll join us for that conversation. Until then, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.